Section 64 of The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume 2 by James Boswell. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Next morning he introduced me to Mrs. Lucy Porter, his stepdaughter. She was now an old maid with much simplicity of manner. She had never been in London. Her brother, a captain in the navy, had left her a fortune of ten thousand pounds, about a third of which she had laid out in building a stately house and making a handsome garden in an elevated situation in Lichfield. Johnson, when here by himself, used to live at her house. She reverenced him, and he had a parental tenderness for her. Footnote. Though his letters to her are very affectionate, yet what he wrote of her to Mrs. Thrale shows that her love for him was not strong. Thus he writes, July the 20th, 1767, Miss Lucy is more kind and civil than I expected. The Odsey Letters, July the 17th, 1771, Lucy is a philosopher and considers me as one of the external and accidental things that are be taken and left without emotion. If I could learn of Lucy, would it be better? Will you teach me? Ibi. August the 1st, 1775. This was to have been my last letter from this place, but Lucy says I must not go this week. Fits of tenderness with Mrs. Lucy are not common, but she seems now to have a little paroxysm, and I was not willing to counteract it, if it... October the 27th, 1781. Poor Lucy's illness has left her very deaf and, I think, very inarticulate. But she seems to like me better than she did, if it... October the 31st, 1781. Poor Lucy's health is very much broken. Her mental powers are not impaired, and her social virtues seem to increase. She never was so civil to me before. Ibid. On his mother's death he had written to her, Every heart must lean to somebody, and I have nobody but you. End footnote. We then visited Mr. Peter Garrick, who had that morning received a letter from his brother David, announcing our coming to Lichfield. He was engaged to dinner, but asked us to tea and to sleep at his house. Johnson, however, would not quit his old acquaintance Wilkins of the Three Crowns. The family likeness of the Garricks was very striking and Johnson thought that David's vivacity was not so peculiar to himself as was supposed. Sir, said he, I don't know but if Peter had cultivated all the arts of gaiety as much as David has done, he might have been as brisk and lively. Depend upon it, sir, vivacity is much an art, and depends greatly on habit. I believe there is a good deal of truth in this, notwithstanding a ludicrous story told me by a lady abroad, 
of a heavy german baron who had lived much with the young english at geneva and was ambitious to be as lively as they with which view he with assiduous exertion was jumping over the tables and chairs in his lodgings and when the people of the house ran in and asked with surprise what was the matter he answered j'apprends d'être fif we dined at our inn and had with us a mr jackson one of johnson's schoolfellows whom he treated with much kindness though he seemed to be a low man dull and untaught he had a coarse grey coat black waistcoat greasy leather breeches and a yellow uncurled wig and his countenance had the ruddiness which betokens one who is in no haste to leave his can he drank only ale he had tried to be a cutler at birmingham but had not succeeded and now he lived poorly at home and had some scheme of dressing leather in a better manner than common to his indistinct account of which dr johnson listened with patient attention that he might assist him with his advice here was an instance of genuine humanity and real kindness in this great man who has been most unjustly represented as altogether harsh and destitute of tenderness a thousand such instances might have been recorded in the course of his long life though that his temper was warm and hasty and his manner often rough cannot be denied i saw here for the first time oat ale and oat cakes not hard as in scotland but soft like a yorkshire cake were served at breakfast it was pleasant to me to find that oats the food of horses was so much used as the food of the people in johnson's own town Footnote. boswell varies johnson's definition which was a grain which in england is generally given to horses but in scotland supports the people End of he expatiated in praise of lichfield and its inhabitants who he said were the most sober decent people in england footnote. i remember said dr johnson when all the decent people in lichfield got drunk every night Boswell's hebrides august the nineteenth End of footnote the genteelest in proportion to their wealth and spoke the purest english footnote he had to allow that in literature they were behind the age nearly four years after the publication of evelina he wrote whatever burney in square brackets by burney he meant miss burney may think of the celerity of fame the name of evelina had never been heard at lichfield till i brought it i am afraid my dear townsman will be mentioned in future days as the last part of this nation that was civilized but the days of darkness are soon to be at an end the reading society ordered it to be procured this week piozzi letters in the footnote and spoke the purest english I doubted as to the last article of this eulogy, for they had several provincial sounds as there pronounced like fear instead of like fair, once pronounced 
once instead of once or once johnson himself never got entirely free of those provincial accents garrick sometimes used to take him off squeezing a lemon into a punch-bowl with uncouth gesticulations looking round the company and calling out who's for punch footnote garrick himself like the litchfieldians always said supreme superior burney and a footnote very little business appeared to be going forward in litchfield i found however two strange manufactures for so inland a place sailcloth and streamers for ships and i observed them making some saddle-cloths and dressing sheepskins but upon the whole the busy hand of industry seemed to have quite slackened surely sir said i you are an idle set of people sir said johnson we are a city of philosophers we work with our heads and make the boobies of birmingham work for us with their hands Footnote. Johnson did not always speak so disrespectfully of Birmingham. In his Taxation No Tyranny, works volume 6, page 228, he wrote, The traders of Birmingham have rescued themselves from all imputation of narrow selfishness by a manly recommendation to Parliament of the rights and dignity of their native country. The boobies, in this case, were sound Tories. End footnote. There was at this time a company of players performing at Litchfield. The manager, Mr. Stanton, sent his compliments and begged leave to wait on Dr. Johnson. Johnson received him very courteously, and he drank a glass of wine with us. He was a plain, decent, well-behaved man, and expressed his gratitude to Dr. Johnson for having once got him permission from Dr. Taylor at Ashbourne to play there upon moderate terms garrick's name was soon introduced johnson garrick's conversation is gay and grotesque it is a dish of all sorts but all good things there is no solid meat in it there is a want of sentiment in it not but that he has sentiment sometimes and sentiment too very powerful and very pleasing but it has not its full proportion in his conversation when we were by ourselves he told me forty years ago sir i was in love with an actress here mrs emmet who acted flora in hob in the well footnote this play was sibber's hob or the country wake with additions which in its turn was doggett's country wake reduced reads biographia dramatica end of footnote what merit this lady had as an actress or what was her figure or her manner i have not been informed but if we may believe mr garrick his old master's taste in theatrical merit was by no means refined footnote boswell says post under september thirtieth seventeen eighty three that Johnson had thought more upon the subject of acting than might be generally supposed. End of footnote. He was not an elegans formarum spectator. Footnote. A nice observer of the female form. 
Croker. Terence Eunuchus, Act Three, Scene Five, and a footnote. Garrick used to tell that Johnson said of an actor who played Sir Harry Wildair at Lichfield, footnote, in Farquhar's comedy of Sir Harry Wildair, end footnote, there is a courtly vivacity about the fellow, when in fact, according to Garrick's account, he was the most vulgar ruffian that ever went upon boards. We had promised Mr. Stanton to be at his theatre on Monday. Dr. Johnson jocularly proposed me to write a prologue for the occasion. A prologue by James Boswell, Esquire, from the Hebrides. I was really inclined to take the hint. We thought. Prologue spoken before Dr. Samuel Johnson at Lichfield, 1776, would have sounded as well as prologue spoken before the Duke of York at Oxford in Charles II's time. Much might have been said of what Lichfield had done for Shakespeare by producing Johnson and Garrett, but I found he was averse to it. We went and viewed the museum of Mr. Richard Green, apothecary here, who told me he was proud of being a relation of Dr. Johnson's, it was truly a wonderful collection, both of antiquities and natural curiosities and ingenious works of art. He had all the articles accurately arranged with their names upon labels printed at his own little press, and on the staircase leading to it was a board with the names of contributors marked in gold letters. A printed catalogue of the collection was to be had at a bookseller's. Johnson expressed his admiration of the activity and diligence and good fortune of Mr. Green in getting together in his situation so great a variety of things, and Mr. Green told me that Johnson once said to him, Sir, I should as soon have thought of building a man of war as of collecting such a museum. Mr. Green's obliging alacrity in showing it was very pleasing, his engraved portrait, with which he has favoured me, has a motto truly characteristical of his disposition. Nemo sibi, we wat. A physician being mentioned, who had lost his practice because his whimsically changing his religion had made people distrustful of him, I maintained that this was unreasonable, as religion is unconnected with medical skill. Johnson Sir, it is not unreasonable, for when people see a man absurd in what they understand, they may conclude the same of him in what they do not understand. If a physician were to take to eating of horse-flesh, nobody would employ him, though one may eat horse-flesh and be a very skilful physician. If a man were educated in an absurd religion, his continuing to profess it would not hurt him though his changing to it would. We drank tea and coffee at Mr. Peter Garrick's, where was Mrs. Aston, one of the maiden sisters of Mrs. Wormsley, wife of Johnson's first friend, footnote, Gilbert Wormsley, end of footnote, and sister also of the lady of whom Johnson used to speak with the warmest admiration by the name of Molly Aston, who was afterwards married to Captain Brodie of the Navy. 
on sunday march the twenty fourth we breakfasted with mrs cobb a widow lady who lived in an agreeable sequestered place close by the town called the friary it having been formerly a religious house she and her niece miss adie were great admirers of dr johnson and he behaved to them with a kindness and easy pleasantry such as we see between old and intimate acquaintance he accompanied mrs cobb to st mary's church and i went to the cathedral where i was very much delighted with the music finding it to be peculiarly solemn and accordant with the words of the service we dined at mr peter garrick's who was in a very lively humour and verified johnson's saying that if he had cultivated gaiety as much as his brother david he might have equally excelled in it he was to-day quite a london narrator telling us a variety of anecdotes with that earnestness and attempt at mimicry which we usually find in the wits of the metropolis dr johnson went with me to the cathedral in the afternoon Footnote. craddock memoirs says that in the cathedral porch a gentleman who might perhaps be too ambitious to be thought an acquaintance of the great literary oracle ventured to say dr johnson we have had a most excellent discourse to-day to which he replied that may be sir but it is impossible for you to know it it was grand and pleasing to contemplate this illustrious writer now full of fame worshipping in the solemn temple footnote the tempest act foreseen one end of footnote of his native city i returned to tea and coffee at mr peter garrick's and then found dr johnson at the reverend mr seward's canon residentiary who inhabited the bishop's palace footnote johnson in seventeen sixty three advising miss porter to rent a house said you might have the palace for twenty pounds crocus boswell end of footnote in which mr wormsley lived and which had been the scene of many happy hours in johnson's early life mr seward had with ecclesiastical hospitality and politeness asked me in the morning merely as a stranger to dine with him and in the afternoon when i was introduced to him he asked dr johnson and me to spend the evening and sup with him he was a genteel well-bred dignified clergyman had travelled with lord charles fitzroy uncle of the present duke of grafton who died when abroad and he had lived much in the great world he was an ingenious and literary man had published an edition of beaumont and fletcher and written verses in Dodsley's collection. His lady was the daughter of Mr. Hunter, Johnson's first schoolmaster. And now, for the first time, I had the pleasure of seeing his celebrated daughter, Miss Anna Seward, to whom I have since been indebted for many civilities, as well as some obliging communications concerning Johnson. Footnote. Boswell, after his book was published, quarrelled with miss seward he said that he was forced to examine these communications with much caution 
they were tinctured with a strong prejudice against Johnson. His book, he continued, was meant to be a real history, and not a novel, so that he had to suppress all erroneous particulars, however entertaining. He accused her of attacking Johnson with malevolence. Gentleman's Magazine, 1793. For Boswell's second meeting with the Sea Post, volume 3, page 284, and footnote. Mr. Seward mentioned was the observations which he had made upon the strata of earth in volcanoes, from which it appeared that they were so very different in depth at different periods that no calculation whatever could be made as to the time required for their formation. This fully refuted an anti-mosaical remark introduced into Captain Brydon's entertaining tour. I hope heedlessly, from a kind of vanity which is too common in those who have not sufficiently studied the most important of all subjects. Dr. Johnson, indeed, had said before, independent of this observation, Shall all the accumulated evidence of the history of the world Shall the authority of what is unquestionably the most ancient writing be overturned by an uncertain remark such as this? Footnote. A signor recupero had noticed on Etna the thickness of each stratum of earth between the several strata of lava. He tells me, wrote Brydon, he is exceedingly embarrassed by these discoveries in writing the history of the mountain, that Moses hangs like a dead weight upon him and blunts all his zeal for inquiry, for that really he has not the conscience to make his mountain so young as that prophet makes the world. The bishop, who is strenuously orthodox, for it is an excellency, has already warned him to be upon his guard and not to pretend to be a better natural historian than Moses. Brydon's tour. End footnote. On Monday, March the twenty-fifth, we breakfasted at Mrs. Lucy Porter's. Johnson had sent an express to Doctor Taylor's, acquainting him of our being at Lichfield. Footnote. He wrote, "Mr. Boswell is with me." but I will take care that he shall hinder no business, nor shall he know more than you would have him. Mr. Morrison's collection of autographs, end of footnote. And Taylor had returned an answer that his post-chase should come for us this day. While we sat at breakfast, Dr. Johnson received a letter by the post, which seemed to agitate him very much. When he had read it, he exclaimed, one of the most dreadful things that has happened in my time. The phrase, my time, like the word age, is usually understood to refer to an event of public or general nature. I imagined something like an assassination of the king, like a gunpowder plot carried into execution, or like another fire of London. When asked, what is it, sir? He answered, Mr. Thrale has lost his only son. End of section 64